And the key to being able to grow, to being able to get beyond those stuck points where we really can get so easily mired in our misery, in our resentfulness, in our bitterness, in our profound sense of this isn't fair. The key is to be able to look at this and say, not why me, but what now? Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the online platform for therapy. Are you thinking of starting therapy or are you in need of a new therapist? Go to BetterHelp.com and find the therapist that meets your need. You can access them from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day, you can find your therapist that fits your need. BetterHelp is giving us 10% off the first month. They are so affordable. Go check them out. BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Gift yourself therapy. Go get yourself wellness. Hello, and thank you for joining me here once again on the Hope to Recharge podcast. I am super excited today for our guest. It took me about seven months to actually put him on my calendar. Dr. Eric Fier. He lives in Atlanta. We met, um, I'm trying to, we didn't physically meet face-to-face. We're meeting now on Zoom for the first mm-hmm. time, but we spoke through the phone and texting many times. And I actually visited his home and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but he wasn't there. And when I heard of him from a mutual friend, from a few mutual friends, I reached out right away and I'm, I was fascinated by his story and what he works with and what he brings to the world. And I was so excited that he said yes to be on our show. So I'm going to reveal all the background in a few minutes, but I just want to welcome him. He's a psychiatrist. He works with kids, adolescents, and adults in a very unique way that I think most traditional doctors don't do, and we're going to discuss it here on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me here, Dr. Fear. Thanks so much for having me. This is really special. (laughs) Yes. So I want to give the audience a little bit of a deeper background on um, why I came to your house when you were not there. Mm. So a friend of mine that that was actually a doctor as well, and another friend of mine that lived in Atlanta, um, told me about this beautiful garden that somebody handmade and built on his own and is still nurturing Dr. Eric Fier. And the garden was named after a very special person, Racheli's Garden. It's called Racheli's Garden. And that Racheli was, is um, Dr. Eric's daughter. 
that passed away a few years ago. And it is the most magnificent piece of garden on this planet Earth that looks like heaven. I, I think that whatever I say is not going to do justice to this garden because it's just magnificent. And there's a big story behind this garden. And I want to go into the story, but I was so lucky to be in Atlanta on one of my visits to Spanx headquarters. And I jumped into an Uber and Dr. Fier was in his office off premises. And I said, can I go into your garden? He said, be my guest, go. And I just didn't want to leave. I was sitting in that garden and it was like the world stopped and you're just in this place of Zen and beauty and connection to something bigger than ourselves. And I wish Dr. Eric was there to walk through the story with me and that it will be, have, it will be a bigger meaning for me. But I will come back to Atlanta and we're going to have a, a tour, a personal tour of the garden. But I wanted to share this story and then we're going to go into the actual work that Dr. Eric does. But I wanted to share this story with my audience because it is such a powerful story. Dr. Eric, can you start by sharing a little bit of your background? What brought you to Atlanta? How you became a psychiatrist? And then when did Racheli come into your life and her story of Racheli? Okay. So thanks, so much. thanks so much for the beautiful introduction. I grew up in Baltimore. I did my pre-medical studies at Yeshiva University and then at Einstein for medical school. I met my wife there. I was quite confident that I was going to be a pediatrician. And um, I always enjoyed working with children. I found that um, I often connected better with kids than I necessarily did with adults. But when I got to my psychiatry rotation during my third year of medical school, it was absolutely fascinating because what I realized was that unlike in pediatrics, where when you see a child with an ear infection, the backstory behind how they got the ear infection really isn't terribly relevant to how you're going to address what's going on with their ear. I found that in psychiatry, whether someone was struggling with depression or with OCD or with schizophrenia, two people could have the same diagnosis. But the road to how they landed in that place in life and the nature of their journey to that particular clinical endpoint was not only interesting, but it was hugely relevant. And being able to meet people, not necessarily under a particular diagnostic umbrella where the conversation really begins with making the diagnosis, but instead being able to allow people to bring you on their journeys through where they've struggled, through where they've strived, through where they've fallen, and being able to understand how they arrived at whatever clinical destination they did, which is always going to be some combination of genetics and epigenetics and environmental issues and spiritual challenges and all different life events. But being able to synthesize the journey seemed to make all the difference when trying to find a way to reach that individual in pain and to be able to help facilitate and nurture a level of healing. And that was absolutely fascinating because on some level, it also made me realize, and this is really very relevant to my own journey with my daughter, unlike in pediatrics or in other areas of medicine, where I felt that I could tap into everything that I learned the previous three years in medical school to be able to help me in the clinical service that I provided, in psychiatry, 
I had the opportunity to tap into everything that I've been through in my own life and being able to look at every place where I have struggled and every area where I've faced a particular challenge and every episode of adversity in my life now suddenly had a level of utility mm-hmm. and purposefulness and meaning that if I chose to relate to it, not necessarily simply as something that was an unfortunate um, series of events or happenstance that just happened to befall me, but instead a really rich opportunity to be able to mine a difficult experience for something that could then grow me or move me or change me or impact my perspective in a way that then allows me to connect with someone else more meaningfully, suddenly everything that took place along the journey of my own life had a level of relevance and meaningfulness and utility. And that was really powerful. And that felt like something that I shouldn't squander. And so years later, you know, I eventually finished my training, went out to Pittsburgh for my residency. My wife and I are both psychiatrists. We came to Atlanta for a a fellowship that my wife was doing in forensics. And we had three healthy children, um, three boys, Yoni and Shui and Ari. Mm -hmm. And then we had our daughter, Racheli. And by the time we got Racheli's diagnosis, which with Tay-Sachs, is 100% fatal in children. We suddenly were, we suddenly found ourselves in a position where we had to reconceptualize what it was that lay before us. Mm. Because suddenly I could relate. I remember our diagnosis day it was December 4th, 2003. That was the day that we learned that I need to return my daughter to her creator much sooner than I ever anticipated. And I recognized then I really needed to find a way to reconceptualize everything that was happening around me. Because whatever system I had up until that point in my life would not by itself prepare me for this next journey. Wow. What a lesson is that? Wow. I mean, so we have a choice. You know, we can all read Man's Search for Meaning and we could, you know, soak up the words of Viktor Frankl Mm. and try to sort of wrap our brains around how do we define or identify some sense of purpose. Mm. We certainly can't very often identify a why, but we can certainly try to identify a what now. Wow. Okay, this is mine. I can't necessarily lose, I shouldn't necessarily spend great amounts of time asking myself why. We did our Tay-Sachs testing before we ever had children. We knew that my sister was a carrier. We were very vigilant about making sure I wasn't. I had my testing done that said I was not a carrier, and we went on and had three healthy children. But the test was read wrong. Wow. And we had a child with Tay-Sachs. And so once I, once I make peace with the notion that this is mine, at that point, I can do one of two things. I can dig my heels in and I can say, this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. This isn't what I asked for. This isn't what I wanted. 
I was responsible. I did my part to make sure everything would be okay. And that's a formula, Matana, for bitterness and stagnation. That's not a position where I grow, and that's not doing a great service to my child who's sitting there before me looking for me to step into the person that I presume I must be capable of becoming if this is the child that I'm holding in my arms. And so at that point, I need to make a decision to become agile. Because if I don't pivot, if I don't shift the way that I am looking at this, if I'm holding my dying child in my arms, and that's the end of this story, then I'm missing out on the richest opportunity to grow through and with my daughter. And so I made a decision, and this was not an overnight decision by any means, but I remember deciding that what I needed to do, I was not going to daven for a specific outcome. I wasn't going to daven for a miracle. I was not going to tell Hashem how things needed to be. I was not going to define for Hashem what a miracle needs to look like. I'm going to just step in. Not all of our audience are, are Jewish. So we're going to just, what he's saying, Davin means pray and Hashem is God. So he was Thank not you. going to pray to God and he's not going to pray for, okay, just continue. I just wanted to give so a translation. That, exactly. So it wasn't that I wasn't going to pray to God. I wasn't going to tell God how things needed to be. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to select what the outcome needed to be. Mm-hmm and to define what a miracle needs to look like. Mm -hmm. What I was going to pray for Mm -hmm. is the strength Mm -hmm. and the relative wholeness Mm -hmm. to make it through to the other side of this journey. Mm -hmm. I wanted the strength that would come through wisdom and understanding Mm -hmm. and humility and patience and compassion and acceptance and ultimately clarity. And if I could have that, if I could be strong enough to be able to reconceptualize everything that was happening around me and to find a way to embrace this, not even as my challenge, but as my opportunity, Mm -hmm. this is my chance to carry my child through her visit, through her holy visit to this world. And my job is not necessarily to make this end the way that I want it to end or the way that I expect this to end. My job is to be who my daughter needed me to be. And the way I envisioned that was that I needed to see beyond the loss of her physicality, the withering of her physical body, and to be able to find a place where I could align my neshama, my soul, with hers. And if I could find that point of connection and continue to return to that place of connectivity, then whatever would ultimately change as her body began to fade and as she would lose almost all of her capacities to move, to eat, 
to see as she would lose all of those physical capacities, I would then have, I would have access to something which is much deeper than any of those. And that Kesher, that connection or that bridge between my soul and hers would ultimately be something that would long outlive my daughter and my physicality. And in the end, that was my challenge. Wow. I'm processing. Wow. That is like, I think the ultimate place most people want to get to, but I shouldn't say want to, would dream of getting to after many, many years of guidance and help and yearning and breaking it down. And the fact that you were able to get to it through the struggle, not after. A lot of people, a lot of time people do this after they process the pain and mm. the mourning and, and they, they realize, okay, there was a purpose for the pain, but you were doing it in the middle of the crisis, in the middle of the pain of the journey, because you realized that it was both good for you and for her and other, and nothing but that would serve the journey as well as what you decided and came to terms with an acceptance. So I certainly don't want to give the impression that there wasn't an enormous level of sadness mm-hmm. and of pain and of mourning. When you get a when you get a terminal diagnosis, the first thing that is the first casualty of a terminal diagnosis are your dreams. Right. Every image that you had of what your life was, quote unquote, supposed to look like Mm -hmm. the scenes of walking your daughter down the aisle, walking with your daughter to synagogue, the scenes of simply walking with your daughter with the diagnosis of Tay-Sachs, all of that in an instant is shattered. Right. That then brings the second of these profound shifts that you have to get through. That number one, simply because I envisioned things going a certain way that I decided, that I decided they were supposed to go, A, doesn't mean that that's how they will go. That's Mm -hmm. that's no big uh, insight. But B, doesn't even mean that that's necessarily how they need to go, right? So A is easier to accept. We're all familiar with disappointment. But B, the idea that something so not okay might actually be okay. Wow. That takes a lot longer to get to, but it's huge because at the point that you then rewrite so much of where we struggle, and this gets to journeys far beyond just you know, saying goodbye to a child sooner than you expect, but so much of the areas, Matana, where we struggle most as humans, is when what we find before us doesn't match up with what we decided things were supposed to look like. And we'll sometimes wrestle and struggle and resist the fact that we can't make our realities match what we envisioned for ourselves. And the key to being able to grow, to being able to get beyond those stuck points where we really can get so easily mired in our misery, in our resentfulness, in our bitterness, in our profound sense of this isn't fair. The key is to be able to look at this and say, not why me, but what now? Right. What can I do with this? 
how can I nurture this into the sweetest pain I ever know? It's still my pain yeah. and it's all mine. Right. But what can I, how can I embrace this pain in a way that signifies it with a level of sensitivity and beauty and embrace that allows this to be a rich, transformative journey mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. If I can do that, then what I can then offer my child by accompanying her neshama, her soul on this journey, not because I'm sitting alone in the dark on the floor of my closet, because I'm sitting next to her and I'm rocking her through her seizures Mm. and that every seizure becomes our dance. And it's the way that we hold and it's the way that we love and it's the way that we squeeze. Mm. And that as her body is doing what her body does, that her soul never for a second questions that I got you. Wow. I got you. Wow. And in the end, isn't that what we all want to know? Right, right. Wow. How old was she when you found out that she was sick with Tay-Sachs? So we got our diagnosis when she was 14 months. We recognized early on that something wasn't right and that she was developing much slower than she should have. She never um, she never walked. She never crawled. She did mm-hmm. sit up a little bit with support. She did babble a little bit. Mm-hmm. But by the time she was a year, she started having seizures. She started choking on any food that she was taking by mouth. The weakness and the neurodegenerative changes that were taking place that were already present before she was born were now beginning to manifest. And by the time she was two, she had lost her vision and she couldn't really, she was completely wholly dependent on us for every aspect of her care. But again, on some level, watching as painful and as miserable as it was to watch her physical faculties begin to fade, I simply had to keep reminding myself that as as the normal language that I would speak in communicating with my healthy children, a language that includes all sorts of metrics about what you're saying with your words and how you're holding me or how you're communicating or how you're doing in school or what sports you're playing or what you're learning about. All those things that allow me to build a relationship with my, um, with my healthy child, I absolutely had to find a new language. Mm to be able to reach my daughter because it's not as if there isn't a language to learn. Mm-hmm. I just needed to learn it. Wow. And so being able to hold her up next to me as close as I could and try to let her heart be right next to my heart and to see if I can synchronize our heartbeats wow. so that mine was beating with hers. Wow. To wow. be able to lie beside her and listen to the way that she breathes and for me to breathe her breath sounds the way she would inhale the way she would sigh to be able to rock her in exactly a certain way as her body would tense up and i would tense with her to hold her in that tightness and to squeeze her through that 
This became our love language. And as her physicality faded, I was able to, much of the time, I was able to remind myself that the relationship I was growing, that even as I was losing my child physically, the relationship I was nurturing and the relationship I was growing was a forever relationship with my daughter's soul. Mm. And that's something, like I mentioned, that would ultimately outlive both of us. That's such a beautiful way of thinking about it in a deep way. And and as you're speaking, I'm I'm keep on pondering, was was this your personality before you got this challenge of depth and connection to um to anything that's challenging like not most most people don't go to that extra level of, of understanding souls and connecting on such a deep level were you always so deep was it your medical field that got you to to this depth because it's very unusual so I, I'm I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that we're taught such things in formal sort of ways I think that there are many things that our children teach us through the experience of parenting them. And my belief, I don't know if this is factual, my belief is that things in this realm are not necessarily ones that we learn as much as things that we're reminded of. Mm. There are probably certain truths and certain understandings, Matana, that we enter this world with, right? Mm. Those right. are our soul memories. Mm. Those are things that are in the Shama that our soul knows. Mm -hmm probably from previous journeys right. through this world. Nice. And I imagine that when we're born, we have no conscious recollection of these things, but we meet certain people, not mm -hmm. just their children. Right. We meet someone, it could be a grandparent, it could be a stranger, it could be someone that inspires us or connects with us. And as we look in their eyes or as we listen to their words or as we hold their hand, we discover something in ourselves that rings deeply and powerfully familiar. Mm. And it may be someone that you just met, and yet you feel that there's a connection, yes. or that something has been awakened in you, yes. not something that was just planted in you. Yes, It's something that's been there that just germinated. Familiar, right? a familiar, the seed, yeah. The seed has been there and yeah. something just germinated through this connection. Interesting. And you realize, I've known this all along. Yeah. I just forgot. It feels and, right. And you just know. Yeah. There's certain things you just know. Mm. And I'd like to think that, I'd like to think that all of us um, learn the real life lessons in this way, in this way, not so much from what we read or from what um from what we absorb through uh, social media mm -hmm. as much as through the soul connections that we make over the course of our lives and when we meet certain people and when we share certain um moments of transcendence mm -hmm. together parts of us awaken and they're familiar yeah and we recognize them and we say oh eric that's where you are Oh, so beautiful. And to be 
open to it and inviting them and not disregarding in a moment like that. Because as you said, mm. we have these moments and sometimes we disregard them because they just are strange because they don't happen that frequent. But then when it does, invite it and connect to it and see the deeper meaning and take it to the next step versus just saying, oh, that's just like random. Okay, moving on. I worry all the time that these moments aren't terribly infrequent. Mm-hmm. but that I miss 99% of them, that all around me in life, I wonder sometimes as I sit in my garden or as I walk through the woods, I wonder how many elements of nature are communicating with me right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm missing them right. because I'm worried. Or this gets to your question at the beginning, how does depression, how does anxiety sort of interfere with our capacities to be able to sometimes absorb all that we need to be absorbing. Sometimes we get so lost in our own neuroses or so uh, so mired in our own self-consumption that we miss so much of what the world is singing to us. Mm-hmm. And stopping and really, it sounds so you know hackneyed or trite, but stopping and really listening to what is this sunset saying to me? If if these trees were talking to me, if they were whispering, right? What would they be saying? Chances are it wouldn't be nearly as self-critical as what I'm saying to myself. Right? Right? Yeah. And that we're probably surrounded by so many sources and so many rich opportunities to audibly experience or to amplify our capacity to tap into the truths that are right there for us to find. But we miss them. Yes. We're blinded by the rat race that we're running through our entire life and we're missing the vibration of the world and, and, and these little music that you talk about, the, the trees and the animals and all that. It's really the vibrations of the world talking to us and synchronizing with us, but we're so busy running. There's a quote from Brian Andreas, who um, I put it on the back of Rachel's card that I made a number of years ago that he writes... Most people don't know there are angels whose only job is to make sure you don't get too comfortable and fall asleep and miss your life. Wow. I think that we're surrounded by all sorts of little wow. reminders, some of which hurt, yes. some, of which, some of which elicit a level of pain or a level of um, wakefulness that we didn't necessarily ask for. Mm-hmm. But as Viktor Frankl says in Man's Search for Meaning, homeostasis being at some comfortable equilibrium is not what life's about. None of us grow from being in a state of homeostasis. It's only in the tension. It's mm. only in the places where we're feeling the pull and mm. where we're wrestling and struggling. That's where we grow. That's right. where we move. That's where, truthfully, that's even where we love. Right. I agree 1000%. And uh, and so many times I tell people you have a choice to either um, be miserable with this challenge or look for the place where it could take you to the next level of connection to who you are and what your purpose is and make purpose out of the pain. And then when the joy comes afterwards, it's a joy that you've never accessed in your life. It's a deeper meaning of joy, not simple, exciting things of life that social media shows us, but the Mm. true meaning of connection to ourselves, to our journey. It's just something that 
only after pain we can experience. But if we choose to see the deeper meaning and work with the pain and grow, can we get to there? And it's not easy. I would agree. <laughs> How old was Racheli when she passed away? Racheli was nine. Um, nine! We were told that most children with infantile Tay-Sachs um, typically live three years, sometimes five years at the far end. Racheli was with us for a little over nine years. Yeah. Did you did you devote your whole life to stopping everything to be with her? Was she in the hospital? Was she home? She what was, was hospitalized she? twice um, around her diagnosis. We made a decision after the second hospitalization that our goal was to keep Racheli at home, to try to build a little, um, a little holy space for our daughter to reside in our home mm -hmm. and to do all that we could to try to keep her as healthy, as well, and as comfortable for as long as we could. We were not going to do anything to try to accelerate the end of this chapter. Mm -hmm. I don't, I understand why people make decisions that they do sometimes to, right, right. you know, to be less aggressive with their treatments. We wanted to make this journey as rich and as meaningful and as beautiful as we could at that when, and that Racheli would let us know when it's time. Wow. And so my wife stopped working. She, um, she stayed home full time with Racheli. Wow. I continued working and, um, and this became our life. And our boys all learned to sort of, um, to sort of embrace the new version of life with, um, with a terminally ill sister. And I will say that as challenging as that was for all of us and certainly yeah. for my three healthy boys yeah the young men that they have grown into their level of i think their level of compassion of sensitivity of sweetness of understanding i'm not sure that's something they could have found without the experience of Racheli in their lives um they each internalized it differently they each related to her through their own individual personal journey um but we really one thing that we did right my wife and i i'm sure there are many things we did wrong but one thing that we did right was really try to model for our boys a model of embracing this as our special gift I remember, I remember the day when it hit me that I could spend a lot of time in the mode of why me, yeah. right? And many people do. Right. And here's how I got out of that. And not everyone can, and I, I, I accept that. But I decided that if, and the if is a premise, not everyone will agree with the premise, but if Racheli's soul was going to be here, if her soul needed to be here for some period of time, why me? Oh my God, of course me. If she's only going to be on this earth for nine years, why me? Who's going to love her better than my wife and I? So Who's going to hug her tighter than her brothers and I? No, if she's going to be here, why me? Like I'd want another family to have my Racheli? Right. No, not why me? course me this is mine yeah this is mine and if she chose me mm. or if god chose me however this came about 
And I don't need to understand the hows or the whys. Mm -hmm. All I need to do is to be able to embrace this with love Hmm. and with purpose. And that shifts everything. And it was a one-day clarity aha moment that you had. And from then it was just a pride. I am Rachel's daddy. Like it's, it, I got the badge of honor to hold this special soul in our house for nine years. So I do recall the aha moment of why me, of course me, mm-hmm. being able to, um, I don't know that I approached it with a level of pride's a little bit of a tough word. Um, maybe that does capture it on some level, but I certainly related it. I related to the notion of being Rachel's Abba, being mm-hmm. Rachel's dad, mm-hmm. I related to that as not any form of punishment, right. not any form of even tragedy. I struggled when people would describe this as being tragic. Right. It, it, my daughter never knew anything but love. Mm-hmm. And how do I know that what I witness Okay, mm-hmm. what I view from the outside as suffering, right? right? Someone else can say to me, oh, but she's having seizures, but she can't, you know, she can't see. Don't you feel like she's suffering terribly? Why would you want her to be with you for nine years? I have no way of knowing what my child actually experiences. All I know is what I can give to my child, the love that I can shower her with, the nurturance I can provide, for all I know, everything that I perceive as being suffering could be entirely for me. Mm-hmm. That may be meant to engender in me a level of sensitivity, a level of compassion, a level of understanding, a level of nurturance. Do I know that my daughter felt pain? Do I know that she suffered? I don't know that at all. Right. All I know is that I held her tightly and adored her and mm-hmm. nurtured her and made sure that she never would doubt how much love she was surrounded by. She's so lucky, really lucky. I'm wondering if um, you would have one of your patients would come to you and they would be you with your story and you're their doctor. Hmm. And they're coming to you as a psychiatrist and they're saying, why me? Would you be able to give them this clarity that you got to? So um, you bring up a really good point, Matana, because truths that we each come to on our journeys through darkness or through challenge, they are they're our personal truths. My being able to turn to someone else who's losing a child and say to them, this is your special holy journey this is the most beautiful, meaningful, resplendent opportunity you have. No. Not your place. That's not my place. Mm-hmm. We each need to come to this on our own. Mm-hmm. I can speak to how I got there and what I learned and what I valued and what added little elements of light to this journey for me, but it's not my place to tell you how to signify this journey of yours. As a physician, if someone came to me who was losing a child, my job would be to support them in their journey to find some level of meaning through this experience. But my defining for them 
how they need to conceptualize this and what that needs to look like. Now we each need to get there on our own. Do you think someone like you can assist someone to get there or it's something, an internal growth that you have to go through? Like what's the relationship between a psychiatrist, a therapist, a healer, and the patient getting to their clarity and their growth? Because what you went through, I'm what I'm asking is like, do you think the fact that you had the knowledge as a psychiatrist, as a therapist, did it help you get there? So I'm going to answer your question in a little bit of a funny way. I'm not so sure that my training, my training as a physician, my wife as well, certainly allowed us to take excellent care of our daughter. We understood a lot of what was happening medically and being able to manage everything at home for the next, you know, eight years after her diagnosis without ever going back to the hospital. I'm not so sure that if we didn't have our medical backgrounds, that we would have felt quite as confident in managing all of this at home. But where being a psychiatrist was probably of critical value for this journey for me was that at many of my darkest moments and many times where I was overwhelmed with a sense of loss or a profound sense of sadness, the one thing that likely made the biggest difference in getting through those dark moments was being able to go to work and to immerse myself in the lives of my patients. Helping others. People would sometimes say to me, how do you come to work and listen to other people's problems when your child is dying? Doesn't everything seem petty if they're complaining about their boyfriend or talking about their job loss? And I would say, oh my gosh, no. To be able to immerse in someone else's journey, to be able to be present and mindful and loving and invested, that's the greatest gift. That's the greatest opportunity to be able to reattain a certain level of balance, a certain level of perspective, and a certain recognition that pain isn't relative, right? If I'm losing one child and I meet someone who's losing two children, does that mean that their pain is twice my pain? Mm -hmm. No, pain is pain. It's just ours. And being able to be with other people in their pain, even if the topic of their pain or the nature of their struggle feels or seems milder than mine, it's still their pain. And right now in their life, this is what hurts more than anything. Mm -hmm. Being able to be present there and to make a positive difference there, I feel was critically important in my being able to relate to what I was struggling with in my own personal life with a much greater level of of thoughtfulness and um, and cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I always have this question, a therapist that struggles with mental illness and and a therapist that never felt mental illness is the one that went through the pain, can he serve better? Because they can empathize and sympathize more. My question to you is, after seeing extreme pain, you lived pain, you lived loss, you lived grief, you lived so, but it was for 
constant seeing a child going through a loss that we can't even understand because we can't really communicate with them. Like you said, with your healthy children, it's hard to understand. The lack of knowledge is painful. Just the fact that we don't understand is a pain. So the fact that you went through all this pain, did you get to a new level of empathy and sympathy with your clients than before you went through the pain? I think that loss and suffering is humbling. And humility is generally a good thing in being able to sit with other people in their pain. I don't know that one needs to go through horrible losses to be able to be truly present and sensitive and compassionate and even empathic, in part because I don't know that, I I don't know that the specifics of one's pain is as relevant as the journey, the simple journey of traveling through dark passages and emerging on the other side. So I do think that the experience of loss, the experience of um, this type of challenge can certainly allow one to be a more sensitized, compassionate, and hopefully wise partner with someone else who's struggling and who's hurting. But you and I both know there are many people that go through adversity and emerge only with bitterness Mm -hmm. or only with a sense of resentfulness. And so I don't know that the journey through pain automatically results in wisdom, But I do think that the potential for growth and the potential to be able to not be fearful or uncomfortable sitting with someone else in their darkest places, that is something that grief can teach us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you feel that your relationship with your wife, and you don't have to answer this if it's too private, do you feel like it went to a new level of connection because you went through so much together with seeing a child of both of yours go through their journey that you were unexpecting and not what an average child goes through, to say the least, and to lose a mutual child? Did your connection just go to a level that you can't fathom? So I'm going to give you an answer that may disappoint, but I think it's very nice to think about how adversity brings out our strengths and how we discover these capacities that we never knew we had. But listen, Matana, trauma also has a way of illuminating our weaknesses Mm-hmm. And it can quickly dissolve the thin layers that provide cover for our greatest fears and insecurities and shortcomings. And how people relate under adversity doesn't just reveal their strengths. You know, I think that in movies on the Hallmark Channel and <laughs> in versions of reality that probably exist mostly in my head, couples facing terrible stressors seem to right. join together to become this remarkable, amazing team that are almost indivisible. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, loss is ultimately incredibly isolating. Mm. And there are many points along the way, you know where you find these amazing outpourings of support, of love, of chesed, of kindness, and the way that something seemingly tragic brings out this enormous goodness in others is really a remarkable thing to see. But what you also learn is that there are points along this journey where the road narrows 
very, very tightly. Mm. You know, there's that famous Hebrew song, Kol Haolam Kulo Gesher Tsar Ma'od. Yeah. The whole world is a very narrow bridge, mm. right? And I used to wonder, what does that mean, that the bridge gets so narrow sometimes? And I think that maybe it means that at certain points, only one can pass at a time. Wow. What a powerful insight. Wow. That these are my Gesher Tsar Ma'od moments, my very wow. narrow bridge. Wow. And these periods are ones of intense aloneness. Wow. You make it as far as you can go with your team, wow. your spouse, your family, your friends, your community, until you reach the point in your journey where, for at least a little while, it's just you. And that's a difficult thing to make peace with. Mm -hmm. The idea that some of our travels, almost by definition, have to be ones that we make in solitude. Wow. If you remember the story from the Bible of Yaakov, of Jacob, his greatest fear is he's preparing to meet up with Asaph, with his brother. He does all of his preparation. He divides his family into camps. He gets all the gifts all ready and all the goods and what have you. And then what does he do? Pray. He crosses back over the river <laughs> yeah, alone. all by himself, yes. alone, yes. at night. And that's where he wrestles. And he wrestles. Wow. And he wrestles, right? We have that blessing that we make, Baruch Atah Hashem HaMa'ariv Aravim. Blessed art you, God who brings on the evenings, right? Right. It's, it's in this darkness, mm. in this isolation. This is where we thrash. And I think of it sometimes almost like periods of molting, right? Like where right. we lose literally, as we literally tear at our skin, we discover that there's a stronger emergent layer of self underneath. How does one decide when that time is over of being alone and when is it time to connect? Mm, so that's challenging. I think that as we emerge through those spaces, we often find that the version of ourself that emerges is a seasoned, stronger, wiser, sensitized, version of self. It reminds me almost of when you read about people that have had near-death experiences mm -hmm. and they've died and they spent a certain number of minutes before they were resuscitated experiencing something beyond this world. Mm -hmm. It is rare that when they get resuscitated and come back from those experiences beyond this world that they're not forever changed it's very hard to go through certain types of loss or certain types of awakenings mm -hmm. and ever look at your world the same way that you did before. And sometimes as a couple, and my wife and I are still together, <laughs> sometimes as a couple, you come out on the other side of this journey and each of you are fundamentally changed yes. in ways that are gorgeous and yes. that are powerful and that are magnificent. Yes. But are not necessarily identical. Or matching. Right. And then you have a journey to see whether you could find your way back. Because mm -hmm. where you each landed on the other side of this river can be quite far. 
You've each grown and chances are what's emerged in each of you is a better, wiser version of you. Wow. But now in the aftermath of saying goodbye to your child or in the aftermath of the severe, you know, mental illness or physical yeah. illness, can you again find where you connect and where you join? And that's the next journey. Realigning the surfaces if they could realign. Yeah. It's like after an earthquake, it's split. Do they yeah. match again? Do they come together again? Is there always a crack in the earth? Right. Like what happens? Right. I always wondered, and I always say this to my husband, and he gets really, really <laughs> upset when I say this, but I'm a very deep analytic person. And I think that what you just shared, by the way, what you just shared, I think is going to be the pivotal gift that you're giving my audience literally gift of understanding what you just said, because it, it you said it so beautifully and it was not with pointing a finger, good or bad. It's a fact. It's a reality. And that's what happens. And it's not good or bad. It's just what happens. And it's an yeah. aftermath of a hurricane. It's a, yeah. of an earthquake of a, of, it's an aftermath and it's, and that's it. And then you have to see where it evolves. And I think it's so beautiful the way you said it. And, and I didn't think, I never thought of it that way. And I'm thanking you for sharing it because it's going to help me with different relationships in my life, not with extreme loss or anything like that. As you said, it could be with mental illness. It could be with any tragedy. It could be with something, a small hiccup in life that takes us through a trauma or an old trauma that's coming up now mm. and it drifts us mm. apart. But what I wanted to say is that I always tell my husband, I don't understand how marriage works. You get married when you're really young, right after you're starting to understand life and you think you know what to do with life. Then they throw children at you, which is completely a different topic of life. And then they throw challenges of life at you completely. And they think that you're going in the right direction. In the meantime, you're evolving midlife crisis, you're evolving even more. Your kids are becoming older, you're evolving even more. And you're still supposed to be in the same track. Like how possible is that? It just doesn't make sense at all. And I always say to them, it should be like a, like a thing that after a few years, it's not do we love or hate each other? Are we still in the right place to be the best vessels for each other? And I think that that's where it should be. And he gets very upset when I talk about it because he wants... He believes we're best friends. We really are best friends and we're very different. We're vastly different and we give each other the space to be different and mm. to evolve differently. And that went through a lot of therapy and work, but to to be able to understand each other through our differences is a challenge and still love each other and show up for each other. So he wants us to just live happily ever after till the day we die. And I always say like, what if we just change so drastically, but not even us, but look at couples that are changing. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong. We don't have to hate each other. We don't have to be so bitter about it. Just life happens. And we're drifting to our own self. Just You said it so beautifully. We just become our own self that might need different stuff or might be better for somebody else or with a, or sometimes people want to be alone. So what people do with in marriages or in relationships specifically, and I'm coming to you now from not your personal experience, but your professional experience. Mm. This is going to be my question for your professional cap. Mm. What do we do when we're going through life and then someone like me 
hits mental illness, I was completely a different person. I was nowhere like Matana that my husband knew. How do you continue loving something so different than what you signed up to and Mm. go through the journey of healing with them? How do you show up for them and Mm. support them and still love them while there are nothing like what you chose or you signed up for when you got married? So I think that you're asking several questions. Um, and I'm going to try to identify the questions and answer answer each of them. I think that first, if the question is, how do we continue loving our partners even as we witness such profound shifts in how they are um, presenting to us? I think that my answer for you is not terribly different than the answer that I gave you earlier about the nature of how I had to learn to relate to my child. None of the metrics that I'd grown accustomed to using for how to relate to my healthy boys were going to serve me in the least when the child in front of me was rapidly deteriorating in a way that any of my tools, any of what I envision for the experience of raising a daughter would serve me. So to love her and to be able to invest in that relationship, I needed to very much find the soul within my child so that where I was always coming home to was not how my daughter was serving me or how my daughter was meeting my needs or how my daughter was no longer who she was six months ago or two years ago. It was a matter of coming back to the same soul that always has been, probably long before even this iteration of her life on on earth this time around and tapping into that frequency and loving that part of her. But Matana, that's a different question than why do we stay with someone? As we come through these journeys Mm -hmm. and as we suffer through really long periods where we are deprived of what feels essential for our own wellness, for our own development, for our own growth and well-being, we somehow make it through because we have to. We have no choice, and people rarely fall apart in the middle of the crisis. Right. It's when the crisis is over. Now I can afford to fall apart. Right. And all of the deferred maintenance, right. all the elements that have been missing, that each partner or each member of the family or of the crisis unit has been hungry for, right. has been starving for. Suddenly, all of those needs become paramount. And we find ourselves now, think about it, now both partners, let's say, regardless of what the nature of the loss or the challenge is, both partners have grown and developed in ways that are likely not identical or even necessarily parallel. And both of them likely through this crucible, through this experience, have grown quite, quite needy and quite hungry for certain types of restoration, of being nurtured, of being tended to, often through different love languages than what the other one speaks and what have you, whether we're able to feed our part when we're starving, Mm -hmm. right? Just like what they say on the plane when the air mask comes down, first take it for yourself and then for your child. Whether we can really feed someone else 
when we are so broken, whether it's fair to expect them to be able to nurture us when just surviving is about all that they can sort of, you know, aim for. Sometimes it's unrealistic to expect that where we find ourselves when we land on the other side of this tsunami, mm-hmm. when the wave has thrown us, you know, quite, quite a distance from each other, right. sometimes we find our way back. Sometimes we still love each other dearly, but can no longer feed each other. And that is where, that is where couples um, struggle and make choices sometimes not to stay together. Mm-hmm. And you understand how through these experiences, we do sometimes find it almost, almost um, cruel, insensitive to expect that people that can no longer nurture the other stay in a space or in a relationship where they're daily reminded of where they're falling short. And that adds a whole new layer of tragedy to the loss that they've already suffered. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting perspective. And I appreciate it because I love the way you said they can no longer feed each other and they're starving. They're literally starving. So they're going to go anywhere where they can feel fed and and no longer feel those cramps in their stomach of starvation for connection, for for love or whatever support, whatever they need. And and you're right, it is a personal journey and each one is different. I think with a child, there's an unconditional love there that keeps us together. Mm-hmm. When a child goes through mental illness, a parent will do almost anything to be the starving one going along yeah. with a journey yeah. like you did, right? Um, with Racheli, with a couple, it's really hard to do an unconditional love when you're famished. It's like almost, it's like almost impossible. A lot of times I say like, maybe when they are no longer feeding you, make sure somebody else is feeding you that you could stay together to see mm-hmm. if they can come back to the table, if they're if they're be if they're able to, but I think it's going to lead me to the next question: Do we put a time frame on grief and mental illness, pain? Is there such a thing that we could say, okay, this is long enough? I know in the Bible we have mm-hmm. a time period for different parts of our grief. There's the first moment when we find out of the death, and then there's that's before the burial, after the burial, seven days, and then there's the 30 days, and then there's a year. So there is time periods in the Bible for grief. But do you believe that we can actually give a set time for grief and moving on from a clinical point of view, from a medical point of view? Right. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of the word closure because I'm not sure that there ever really is closure. And to me, the notion of closure is almost a little bit insulting because the implication is that I'm done with that chapter. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we should ever be done or completely done with any chapter of of our struggles, in part because much of who we've become and who we've grown into and hopefully even the best versions of ourselves, we've arrived at through those chapters. I feel that we need to be mindful of how our relationship to loss or our relationship to suffering impacts our personal journeys. 
our personal growth journeys in life. I worry about someone. I worry about if I have a patient who is grieving, I worry about whether their grief is no longer serving them in a meaningful way when it seems that they have stagnated in their ability to continue to grow on their own spiritual, personal trajectory. When grief or loss stagnates you, when it locks you in a place where you can no longer get beyond where you find yourself stuck, I think that there's a problem. That's not how grief should operate. Grief should ultimately provide us with a set of ingredients and emotions and reflections and perspectives that ultimately allows us to move ahead, not in spite of, but because of what we've just been through. When someone gets stuck in the emotions of the experience, but without any real capacity to be able to now channel those emotions into a positive growth trajectory. Where do I go? What do I do with this next? What do I take? How do I take what I've just learned? You know, Viktor Frankl writes all about this and, you know, in his experience of people that survive the concentration camps and the individuals that seem to be able to, even if they're, even if the purpose that they defined was completely divergent from one another. One person may say, my purpose is to, um, to avenge the Germans for what they did to my people. Another person may say, my purpose is to repopulate my people because of how many have been exterminated. Another person may say, my purpose is to tell the world of what took place here. Right. It doesn't even matter what one's purpose is as long as they can identify, what do I do Mm -hmm. with what I just went through? I worry about people when the ability to be able to experience their grief, experience their loss, does not then translate into, where does this propel me to? Mm -hmm. What can I now do with this through what I've just learned and experienced? Otherwise, It truly feels tragic because if all this was, was a loss and nothing positive, meaningful, purposeful comes through or grows from these ashes, then that truly is tragic. Right. So there's more to grief. It's not just grief. There's a little bit more to it because grief evolves. You're saying grief changes. And, you know, I I don't know if you believe in the saying time heals all wounds, Mm. but is, does that happen with grief? Tell me what you mean. Does grief heal? Does Does time time heal heal grief? grief? Yeah. So I don't think that time in and of itself heals grief. Um, If it did, then everyone after a certain period of time would, uh, would, uh, would find themselves on the other side of, uh, you know, of the grief process. And you and I both know that some people don't. Some people find themselves mired in misery, forever reliving their loss in a way that doesn't generate or doesn't grow anything from that. This, you know, this brings us to my garden. Right. 
I wanted to, I began while Racheli was alive, I began building a little space outside of our house, a little pavilion that would be sort of our little love shack. It'll be our place, a beautiful little quiet, sweet, modern studio where I envisioned us hugging and listening to music and cuddling and that it would be sort of a sacred, little, precious, sweet space that she and I could share. And Racheli passed midway through the construction of of that little space. I call it my nano house, my little mini sort of studio. And I decided in the aftermath of her passing that I was going to continue building it. And when I was done, I looked at my backyard and there was this beautiful little studio right in the middle of a flat green square in town lot in Atlanta with not very many trees and maybe a couple plain bushes that the builder put in. And I said, I think it's time to begin growing, living, beautiful things. And I wanted to make this a journey or a project that as I worked in my yard, and I knew nothing about gardening or planting or trees or anything. I really had no experience with that, but I watched a lot of YouTube videos and, you know, I learned about, you know, Zen gardening and yeah. principles of sort of, you know, Japanese gardens and what have you. And I decided that the time that I would spend recreating my yard to turn it into a sacred, beautiful, holy space where when I was sitting out there, I could contemplate my daughter, I could contemplate our shared lives together, and I could contemplate the journey of her soul and mine. But what I didn't anticipate, I sort of focused on the end product and what it would be like when I was done and how I could use that space as a meditative retreat to contemplate and celebrate and remember my child. But what I didn't realize was that actually what it would become is an opportunity for Racheli and I to, to plant together. Yeah. And that every hour spent, you know, up, you know, covered in mud and, wow. you know, digging in the dirt and trying to get things to live that just don't grow in Georgia. You know, <laughs> they grow beautifully in Portland and in Seattle, but they don't grow in, you know, 100 degree, you know, humid right. weather. But that as I wrestled to make things live that really shouldn't wow. live, many wow. of which did, not all of them. Wow but that that would be Racheli and my project together. Wow. And every time I run out to the garden with a new, you know, Japanese maple or a oh. new miniature conifer or a beautiful boulder that I found at some, you know, at some rock place or, you know, a new fountain that I'm going to install right. with some, you know, bubbling, you know, feature, I find myself strangely excited because... I invite Racheli along with me, mm. and it's where we meet, and it's where we build, and it's where we plant, and it's where we grow, and it's where we live. Wow. And it becomes a living, dynamic, beautiful, loving space where we join again and again and again. Beautiful. So that was your healing 
of of the loss was through this garden it was if it the, the the you thought of it as a destination but it was really the journey that was healing not the destination so much because there is no destination now because it's a constant journey it's a constant plant, journey right my wife of planting. Makes fun of me all the time yes. I'll, I'll root things just so i can plant more things <laughs> yeah. yeah but um i i remember the first time a friend of mine showed me pictures and she said you have to see this garden you have to see it looks like a J- japanese work of art a beautiful japanese work of art you have to see these colors you have to see you have to see it and she sent me pictures of it and she kept on saying i i just want to sit in this garden for a few minutes drinking a cup of coffee and just sit there and meditate as soon as i saw it she didn't tell me anything about the story i don't even know if she knew right away i said i'm telling you there's a story behind this garden this, this is not a garden that's just evolved with with um, some gardener and um, art. This there is a story behind it. And she said, "How do you know?" I said, "You could see. There's so much passion here. There's so much story in here. There's so much. There, there the colors. There, there's just so much soul in this garden." And I saw it on a picture. And then when I saw it live, when I came to visit your garden, I'm like, she has no idea how the picture doesn't do justice of this garden. And she thought that the picture was heaven. This was like, wow. This and the and the the noises of all the um, I don't know what the bells, what are they called? Those little things. The chimes. They, the and chimes and the waterfall, the little water, and and it just it just it's it, it's literally a place, and I said people should create therapeutic places like this for people to come heal because it's really a healing space. And you could see that you put so much love and connection. And I know that it sounds like a little bit weird and people that are not so spiritual will think I'm a little bit crazy, but you feel Racheli there. Mm. Like you really feel a connection to something bigger than us when you walk into that garden. Thank you for saying that. And you just want to sit on that rocking chair. Like, I didn't want to run back to my conference. I wanted to sit on that rocking chair for hours and just listen to the wind and listen to the bells and and just visualize and look at every plant over there. Every plant is so much love. I read a book, Matana, a number of years ago called The Hidden Life of Trees. And the author writes all about how much there is going on between trees in the forest that we're completely unaware of, and that the networks of communication that exist beneath the ground that are governed by thousands of miles between two trees, thousands of miles of microorganisms, of fungi and mycobacteria and all sorts of subterranean connections between trees that allow them to communicate in ways that we would never otherwise envision or understand through certain sound frequency, through sharing of nutrients, through very subtle scents that different trees give off to communicate things to other trees. And as I read this book and realized there's so much that's going on that I'm not privy to, that I'm not aware of, but to pretend that there isn't a constant level of communication all around me is so 
short-sighted and so limiting. And I remember thinking, maybe this is a model for how souls connect. And that in this world, just like in nature, we may not realize that without ever speaking a word, without ever verbalizing an audible word, there are ways that we communicate with each other, that my soul speaks to your soul, and that our souls are interconnected through a system of tethers that we may never be otherwise aware of, but that really do allow us to join to connect, to nurture, to love. Mm. And if such a beautiful, fluent, verdant language is being spoken in every garden, that really is a model for what, what I learned, what I'd like to think that I learned in my communication with my child, and probably really is a model for what we can each tap into. That gets back to what we spoke about earlier, when we suddenly are hit with an awareness or a truth that doesn't really resonate as something truly new, as much as something that is awakened in us as beautifully and magnificently familiar. And those awakenings, those connections are probably coming through communications that exist far beyond simply the verbal plane and may exist in a different plane entirely than we're aware of. And that's a really remarkable thing to be able to be sensitized to and maybe even to sometimes tap into. I, I can't say I'm in enough to that. And I just posted a few days ago about exactly what you're talking about, because when I was 18, I lived in Hong Kong for a year. And I became very close to one of the members of the community. And she was like my mom there. And she took care of me and my friend and my friend of I that, that came with me to Hong Kong. And she was like our mommy. Everything we wanted, she was there for us. And she had two girls. And I'm saying had because she passed away, unfortunately, from cancer. And she did a, the, the girls are alive, but she passed away. And the loss was, I, I didn't know loss until I lost her. I, I didn't understand what loss means. And when we got, when Ari and I got married, um, we met um, right after we got married. We were both in Florida. She came in to visit. And every time she came to America, we, we met. And she gave me this beautiful handmade Japanese art, handcrafted of this big stone with a hole inside it, all chipped away, very, very uniquely sh chipped away. And two fish connected coming out of this glass or stone kind of thing. And they're, and they're sitting there. The fish are sitting there. And she wrote something about the fact as long as you're going against the stream in the right direction together, you can be different. Just make sure you're going in the right direction. It's something very spiritual and sweet. Mm. And I moved a bunch of times in the last few years and I, and I packed it eight years ago, nine years ago before I, I moved somewhere and I could not find it. We just moved back to our original home a year ago and I found it. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God. God, how her name was uh, Holly. I'm like, Holly, thank you for coming back into my life. And it sits in my kitchen right near I drink my coffee. And when I miss Holly, I just go. No one's allowed to be near me because I'm mm -hmm. having coffee with Holly. I just look at it and I know 
she is smiling and connecting to me. I know. And I just posted, I'm having coffee with Holly mm. because it doesn't have to be that she's there. We do, we do miss the, the physical connection, their yeah. smiles, their, their, their physical touch, but there is a spiritual connection and I highly believe in it. And, and those little fish in my, kitchen are my reminder. And whenever I need to connect, it's like your garden. You connect to Racheli in your garden. I connect to Holly with this little mm-hmm. thing in my kitchen. Since I'm a very little girl, I was very intuitive, very, very intuitive. And I used to dream about things that afterwards I would say, and it would like, I would tell the dream. And then within a, like, like Joseph, they used to call me the Joseph. Like I, they would just come true. And people mm-hmm. would say, don't dream about me. I don't want to, I don't mm-hmm. want you to dream about me unless it's something me winning the lottery or, or marrying the love of my life or whatever. And I remember going once to one of uh, my healers and I believe in energy and all that. And they said, the more you're going to quiet down the vibe, the noise outside you mm. of the world, the c- more you're going to connect to the vibration that we cannot hear. Mm. So when we do the meditation and we disconnect and we're just sitting in silence, that is the deepest connection mm. that we can get to energy that most of us don't hear because we're so busy running. So I I can totally um, agree with what you said with the connection of the souls. I believe in it, and 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 I think it's a gift for for those that can tap into it and and say, you know what? Yes, we miss the physical, but we can still connect into the spiritual part of us. The soul never ends, never. And it's beautiful that you have the garden. Does your wife go out to the garden? She does. She She does. does. Um, I think she enjoys it very much. But I think that probably um, the experience of creating the garden, meaning I think that if someone comes and visits my garden, I think it's meaningful. You know, you're describing a positive and meaningful experience. But I think for me, the fact that every stone in that garden, Rachele and I placed together, right. and that every tree that's lived, and even those that haven't, are projects that we worked on together. The nature of that experience is a very deeply personal one. Beautiful. Beautiful. Before we say goodbye, I could stay here for hours and then it's very late for you and I feel bad and I, I'm so grateful for the time that you gave us. I want you to give us one lesson that you can give my audience that is struggling through mental illness and trying to find the better tomorrow, work hard. What is one thing that you learned through your experience of growth, of your of your loss? that you can share with others to help them go through their journey, even though it's painful, but be resilient to it? What is something that you can share and say, you know what, this is something I acquired, even though I was a doctor, I didn't have that Mm -hmm. before, but only through the experience, I acquired this and I want to share this with you. Is there something? You know, I'll tell you a short story that's um, that's quite magnificent. Racheli was three years old, and it was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And it was time to go to Tashlech, where we go to a, to a living body of water. And we have a small service there, um, right by the riverside or by the streamside. And I asked my wife whether I could bring Racheli along to Tashlech that year. And she said it wasn't a great idea. She said, you know, she's a little bit under the weather. I don't really want her to go out right now, but don't worry, she'll be with you. And we assembled 
Myself and several of my, my neighbors, we assembled at the bottom of my driveway and got ready to walk to the stream, which was uh, probably three quarters of a mile away. And as we stood there at the bottom of the driveway, a small butterfly landed on my right shoulder. Oh, yes. Now, I don't normally attract wildlife, at least <laughs> not to my knowledge, but everyone gathered around and looked at the little butterfly and isn't that cute and look, it's on your shoulder and what have you. And it was a sweet, pretty, fragile looking little butterfly. And we began to walk down the street and through the neighbor's backyards and across another street and down a very, very busy road. And the entire time, the butterfly stayed on my shoulder. Oh. Now, if I was by myself, I might doubt whether my experience really is <laughs> I was perceiving it and whatever, you know, it's not beyond me to have, you know, some perceptual disturbances when I want to believe something badly enough. But there was a group of at least 15 of us, oh. all of whom were watching as this wow. butterfly stood. Sometimes it stood on my shoulder. Sometimes it laid down on its side, down busy streets with lots of traffic. I mean, almost a mile we walked. And that butterfly wouldn't leave. Wow. And we get to Tashluk at a, at a neighborhood park and we spend 20 minutes there doing the Tashluk service and everyone's just gathered around looking at this butterfly on my shoulder. And it's almost uncanny at this point that it's still staying there. You know, is it alive? Is it okay? But it <laughs> clearly was. It would sit back up and flap its wings and then, you know. Wow. And we started to walk back three quarters of a mile, back up the busy street and through people's backyards and down the local roads and all the way back to my house. And the butterfly stayed on my shoulder wow. the entire time. Oh, my God. And as soon as I got back to my driveway, the butterfly flew off my shoulder <sighs> off into the distance. Oh and there God. it went. Oh, my God. It was absolutely um, remarkable. It was absolutely magnificent. And I did realize that sometimes in life, we're asked to carry something that's fragile, that might be a little bit broken, that may not be able to fly entirely on its own for some period of time. And we're gifted with the opportunity to carry that for a little while until it's ready to go off on its own. And that's okay. And so to your question, do we need to sometimes remind ourselves when we're dealing with something that doesn't look like what we anticipated for our lives in our children, in our partners, and our loved ones, and that our job is sometimes just to carry what can't necessarily travel on its own for a period of time until it's time. That's what we do. Mm. And who we become through those journeys very rarely isn't a better, more loving, wiser version of ourselves. And sometimes, Matana, maybe that fragile butterfly represents a part of ourselves. Mm. And we may not always be so fragile. Mm -hmm. And we may not always be so weak. But there may be times in our lives where we have to carry a part of ourselves that's broken or that's sensitive or that's not fully capable of flying entirely on its own. 
And we don't need to approach that with shame. Mm. And we don't need to approach that with embarrassment. We can approach that as a beautiful, loving, gifted opportunity to be self-compassionate and to nurture ourselves when we do need, when parts of ourselves need to be carried with softness and sweetness and patience and love and value. Amen. 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 That was said so beautifully. That was said the whole time when you were saying it, I wanted to say, and sometimes we have to carry ourselves, but you ended it so much nicer than I could have ever said it. So yes, because we're so broken sometimes and we just have to be okay with carrying our pain and and trying another day with our pain and working through and carrying and giving us space to heal and the permission to heal and not and not say what you say why me but how do i grow with this how do i evolve with this it's not the why me it's the how and that was so so this this is just like wow this was such a remarkable story for me and i'm happy that i went down the journey of um, hearing about racheli with my audience it's just she is lucky so lucky to have you as parents and you as a father that is devoted to continue the connection every day in the garden every day every day you're in atlanta you're you're out with her it's sometimes a minute or two and sometimes it's an hour or two but you are you just meet with racheli all the time and you continue her legacy and it's just it's it's such a lesson such a lesson of taking something and taking it to the next level of what we feel is alive. Thanks for um, joining me on this journey. And uh, next time in, uh, I'm in Atlanta, I'm going to have coffee in your beautiful garden. Whether you're there or not, I'll just, um, I'll bring my own coffee if you're not there and uh, sit with Racheli because I know that she hears. And actually I was saying a prayer by one of the waterfalls where you um, you wrote her name by one of the waterfalls and mm. I was saying a prayer because I know she listens and I know she hears and, and it, it was just so beautiful. It was such a powerful experience and I'm grateful that you were able to share it with me and gift me some of it. And um, I, I'm really grateful. I always ask a last question. What is your definition of hope? My definition of hope? Yeah. Ah, the capacity to be able to envision something beyond what I can see today, right? As soon as I stop being able to envision anything more than what I can see today, I've lost hope. I've lost, I've lost the ability to grow. But as long as I can picture, if I can create a mental picture of something a little bit broader, a little bit brighter, a little bit wider, a little bit deeper, a little bit more inviting, a little bit more engaging, a little bit more resplendent. There's hope. Nice. Very nice. You must have thought about this question a very long time. Or you never, <laughs> never, 
Never before, but it seemed like <laughs> seemed like a good answer for it the moment. Came, so. It came really, really authentic and naturally and thought through. So thank you for that. And I would love to have you on next time. Now that my audience knows your journey as as a psychiatrist that went through pain and loss and grief and growth, I would love to hear your psychiatrist uh, mind for an episode of different forms of treatment. And you do also the holistic approach you just you don't it's not all about medication by you art imagination play you have a very diverse way of healing and working with your helping your 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 patients heal so i want to if maybe in the next few months i will grab another hour of your time the next time will be shorter i could promise that mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can deep dive into your way of um the way you practice with your with your patients because i think it, it's unique for psychiatrists to do what you do thanks for saying that <laughs> have a good night patana okay. nice speaking with you okay take care Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.